One of the things we have on our evaluation forms is did the lecturer start and finish on time? It is now one o'clock. <laughs> so I don't know if we have got evaluation forms for today, but just in case, I am now starting on time. This is me, and here we go. So as you will have seen from the slide here, I'm Elizabeth Gemmell. I'm a university lecturer in this department. I teach medieval history. And I'm at the moment director of the weekly class program. So some of you, I think I will have seen already in, in another little session we had on weekly classes. But today, I want to give you uh, an enticing flavor, I hope, of Henry II and the 12th century world. The fact that you're here when it's a medieval topic, is so wonderful to me. Because when I first started to teach for the department back in 2001, the class that I was allowed to teach, the medieval class that I was allowed to teach, was on the Wars of the Roses. And I think that people really came because they would talk, they thought I would talk about the Tudors. And I've, so I've had this battle to, to keep the profile of the Middle Ages and the late Middle Ages going. And what I've done is I've gone backwards from Richard III, sort of into more and more obscure and strange territory. And what I'm going to give a class on next summer is Henry II and the 12th century world because for some periods of history you can focus on England but you clearly can't for Henry II. Um, so this is, uh, I, I wanted to share with you uh, how far I've got with, with Henry II and why I think he is, every king I study, every king I teach, I find I think this is it. This is, this is the really important one. This is the man, or it could be the woman, um, who's at the heart of things. And you've almost got to believe that, to believe that an approach to teaching um, history based on one individual, one period of government, if you like, to believe that that really counts and matters. Um, so I now think that the 12th century is at the, the heart of the Middle Ages. And I, there's actually a lot to be said for that point of view. It is the time of a series of crusades starting at the beginning of the century. It is a time when monasteries were still believed in as the way in which people could most pro closely approach God. It was a time when classical texts were being rediscovered, when new forms of architecture were being experimented with, when universities, including our own, first came into being. It was a time when the medieval church was developing its laws, when different states were in turn developing their laws. Towns and trade were growing along with population. So all of these things one can um, look to through the, the prism of Henry II's reign. So just to show you that I do know dates and can quote dates, 1154 to 1189. 
So what did it mean uh, to be a king in the 12th century? What kind of power did that give you? Um, what did success or failure actually mean? The first interesting fact about Henry II is, I think, his descent. Uh, we are so accustomed to thinking of women being uh, treated as uh, incapable of inheriting and controlling property. And so it's interesting, the background to Henry II. Uh, his mother uh, was Matilda. And here is a picture of Matilda. That is one annoying thing about the Middle Ages, the choice of girls' names and men's names, actually, seems to have been fairly limited. And so you will find quite a lot of people in the 12th century called Matilda. And another thing is that an alternative name for Matilda was Maud. So somebody you thought was called safely Matilda, you might find is called Maud in another document. But we haven't got to let that worry us today. This is Matilda. This is from a source, uh, the, the Golden Book of St. Albans. Uh, it's a late 14th century document, but it has Matilda holding up a charter, um, and she's wearing some sort of crown, uh, which is ironic because she was never crowned in England as queen. Matilda had a credible claim to the English throne because she was the only legitimate daughter of King Henry I. Henry I, here's some more dates, 1100 to 1135. Um, Henry I had a legitimate son, but he was drowned in something called the, the disaster of the white ship. So he, Henry I lost his only legitimate son. Matilda was his only legitimate daughter. And so what Henry decided to do was get everybody to agree that she ought to be allowed to be queen. And he did that at his Christmas court in 1127. And he made all his bishops and all his nobles agree that she would be entitled to be queen when he was no longer alive. And that included somebody called Stephen of Blois, uh, who had his own claim to the throne. And he, too, swore that oath. So, in a way, everything was set fair. The plan was that Matilda would inherit the English throne when Henry I um, was, was to die. Matilda then married. She married somebody called Geoffrey Plantagenet. Uh, he was the son of the Count of Anjou adjacent to Normandy, so it was a strategic alliance because at this time, as some of you will know, English kings are also dukes of Normandy, which again is an interesting, um, the, the, the timing of this is interesting uh, in terms of our conception of, of what it meant to be king of the English. It also meant that you were Duke of Normandy, but, but, but very much negotiable and very much subject to the, um, the views of the, of the King of France, as something I'll come back to. When that marriage took place, when Matilda married Geoffrey Plantagenet, 
uh, the bridegroom's father, another Geoffrey, actually gave the county of Anjou to his son. So so that Matilda and her husband were in their own right, uh, Count and Countess of Anjou. And the idea there, of course, is that now that they have got married, there will be a male heir to the English throne, and that will be the one. The English barons took another oath of loyalty to Matilda in 1131, and she duly produced two sons, Henry, it's going to be our Henry, Henry II, um, and Geoffrey, a younger son. So it all looks as if it's going to be good and Matilda's going to become Queen of the English. However, in 1135, when Henry I dies, she is not, uh, she, she isn't uh, Queen of England. Instead, Stephen, who is Count of Blois, and has his own claim to the English throne through the female line, again, recognition of the female line. He is man of the moment. He's much closer to England than Matilda is. He gets there, he's got allies, he gets somebody, uh, the Bishop of Winchester, to crown him. And he's the man of the moment, and he is the man. Uh, and he has a counterclaim. So Matilda's, all those oaths, came to nothing. One of the books I would like to write when I've written the other ones is uh, the history of the oath in the Middle Ages. Because whenever you seem to come across an oath, it's because someone's breaking it. <laughs> now, does that mean that an oath doesn't matter? Or does it mean that it matters terribly? Because when people break an oath, they go to the Pope to get formal absolution from having taken it. Now, you could be cynical about that and say, well, anybody could go to the Pope any time and get an absolution from an oath. But the fact that you needed to go to the highest authority in order to do it suggests to me that it did actually matter. So, despite them having taken this oath to um, allegiance to Matilda, Stephen is the one who becomes king. Uh, Matilda is a feisty woman. I don't think any historian has, has thought otherwise. Uh, and she fights back immediately with the support of her husband. She attacks Normandy, um, which had become part of Stephen's dominions. She appealed to the Pope herself. Stephen, he got his representative to appeal to the Pope as well, to uphold his claim. And what they came up with, actually... Matilda's being a woman is not a problem, but what is a problem is that her mother was actually a nun. <laughs> That's what they said. We don't believe she was, but what is interesting is that the argument put forward was on the basis of Matilda's illegitimacy, not on her gender. Matilda, notwithstanding, comes to England, uh, is recognized by some to be the rightful heir to the throne, to be the rightful queen. Stephen has a biographer, and he says, he tells us that some people were loyal to Matilda as the daughter of King Henry I. But civil war breaks out. Stephen is captured uh, at the Battle of Lincoln in 1141, and it all seems set for Matilda 
to even enter London and be crowned as queen. The trouble is that there's another Matilda. I did mention that there would be quite a few Matildas involved in this story. Stephen's wife is also called Matilda, and she defends London against the other Matilda. So, Matilda, the mother of Henry II, never gets crowned. She, there's a nice connection with Oxford. She takes refuge in Oxford Castle at, at one point, and then there's, it's besieged, and she has to escape uh, down to Wallingford, um, across the snow. It's a romantic story with Oxford at its heart. But she's never actually crowned, even though she establishes some control over southwest England. What happens in the end is that Matilda, as her son Henry grows up, decides that, that she's going to wait and let him become heir, become recognised as heir, and, 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 and take the crown in due course by succession from her. And Henry, Henry's life um, in his teens began to change dramatically from the end of the 1140s. He is made a knight by King David of Scotland. Um, he's recognized by the King of France, Henry the, sorry, Louis, Louis VII, as Duke of Normandy in 1151. Um, and then Henry's own father died quite suddenly and unexpectedly uh, so Henry, all of a sudden, in the early 1150s, becomes ruler of all his family's French territories. As Henry's star, as it were, starts to rise, the English nobility start to desert the cause of Stephen and his family, and they won't accept his son Eustace. I mean, we could have had a King Eustace, which would have been interesting. But the English magnates decided that Henry was going to be a much better bet. Um, and so the English magnates wouldn't, wouldn't back the claim of Stephen's own son, Eustace. Another massive change in Henry's life was enter Eleanor of Aquitaine. And this is, I suppose, the part that makes the story of Henry II a, a, a romantic one. But it, I think the reason why Eleanor of Aquitaine still commands so much interest among historians is that she, what happened was so, such a political mistake on the part of the French king. So Louis VII and Eleanor of Aquitaine were married. Um, they didn't have sons. They had two daughters. Eleanor of Aquitaine is thought to have had an affair while the two of them were in the Holy Land, um, with her own uncle, and they tried to get a re reconciliation through the Pope, who even sort of made them a honeymoon suite to try to kind of help things along. But in the end, um, and it was in part because they hadn't produced male heirs, Eleanor and the French king were divorced in 1152. We haven't got uh, the official proceedings of the ecclesiastical court that separated them, uh, but 
it was done on grounds that they were too closely related to each other that rather than on any of these other reasons. And within a short while, Eleanor of Aquitaine then married Henry, who was to be our Henry II. Quite why it happened is, is a matter for conjecture. Walter Mapp, who is a sort of Hello Magazine man of the 12th century, said she fancied him. You know, they, you could just see it at the front of the magazine. Eleanor and Henry, shock horror, get together. Or I could, th you know, you can imagine the uh, headlines. Um, he says it was because she was attracted to him, but she was vulnerable. Uh, there had been an attempt to kidnap her. Um, her, um, her, her probity, if you like, was perhaps rather in doubt. So perhaps she thought that this would be this would be a safe way of proceeding. But the marriage between them meant that together they controlled, or would when Henry became king of England in 1154, they would control an empire going from the Pyrenees in southwestern France right up to Scotland. And so the whole of Western Europe would be under the control of those two. Time for another slide. So when King Stephen died in England in 1154, Henry was the next king. The Stephen's son, Eustace, had been cut out of the agreement and then had, had died. And this is a picture of Henry II being crowned king by Theobald of Blois, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Everybody seems to come from Blois, don't they? This is from a 13th century chronicle illustration, which is now in the Cheatham Library, or Chetham Library in Manchester. On paper, or on, I suppose on parchment, although this is before maps start to be made, made in a way we would recognize, it looks like a magnificent inheritance from the Pyrenees to Scotland, but it's only come together by accident, and you don't make a nation out of people just through one marriage of love or convenience or whatever it is. Uh, the, the distance between those peoples is huge in terms of language, in terms of custom and law, and relationship with the state and relationship with the, with, with the crown. And people in the south, even in the south of France, were suspicious of those farther north. Very soon after he came to the English throne, Henry II had to face a rebellion by his own brother, younger brother, called Geoffrey. And he claimed to, uh, that, that he was adhering to their father's will by wanting to be in control of the family's French possessions. And then Henry countered that by seeking the support of the French king, who gave it, but on condition that Henry recognized him as his overlord. And I think that relationship of overlordship, somebody can be king of England, but in respect of their possessions in France, can be subject to the French king. It's something that governs Anglo-French relations for the rest of the Middle Ages. It's an absolutely crucial um, political and diplomatic bargaining point. 
we see that Henry and his family have control of the whole of Western France, but they are subject as men to the French king. The French king's own territories are much smaller, but the French king is a descendant of Charlemagne and is, if you like, the upholder of Christianity in the West in that sense. So to get the French king on side, Henry does homage to Louis, Louis VII, and he does homage to, to his son later on. Despite that sort of difficulty, what we can say is that Henry II, after 1154, he was Henry II, had gone through a most extraordinary um, series of, 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 of um, improvements in his fortunes. What's going to hold this new inheritance together? And people at the time believed that he achieved it by sheer force of personality. Chroniclers of the time, letter writers of the time, spoke of his absolutely boundless frenetic energy. And when you think, you know, they, they say he, there he was in the south of England, and then a week later he appears in, in, in France, and then he's back again. I'll just quote you one or two chroniclers. Herbert of Bosham tells us, he was like a human chariot dragging all after him. Ralph of Dis says, he must fly rather than travel by horse or ship. Walter Knapp, OK magazine of the 12th century, impatient of repose, he didn't hesitate to disturb almost half of Christendom. But if you think about it, he would have to do that because he had to divide his time between England and Normandy and Anjou. And when he was spending leisure time, he wasn't sitting about, he was hunting, riding, engaging in debates with scholars and administrators. Although he is an energetic man militarily, he is also, I think enlightened is, is the wrong word, but he is somebody who was very interested in law and administration as well. And like all good leaders, he knows when to delegate and whom to delegate tasks to. And you'll be guessing who I'm going to talk about next. Um, some of the people to whom he delegated tasks were members of his own family. His mother, Matilda, at last gets uh, a, a bit of a say in affairs. Um, but key among Henry's advisers were his, his English Chancellor, Thomas Becket, uh, born in London. And Becket was to become England's most famous native saint. He was canonized very early on in 1173. There's another date. The fact that he was canonized means that we know an awful lot about him or we think we do. The trouble is with canonization that people had to uh, write in support of the canonization and 
you became very famous for things you hadn't achieved during your lifetime. Some things that you did after you had died, and then things are attributed to you afterwards. So not always completely reliable. But why was Thomas Beckett so valued by Henry? Why did he choose him? He was about 13 years older. He was the son of a Norman who had become a merchant and property owner, so it's sort of middle-class family of London. Because they had some means, he was able to pay for his schooling, and he went into the household of the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was intelligent, he had personality. Um, some people have thought of him, some people thought of him at the time as a bit of a dilettante, not, not a scholar, as scholars were beginning to be thought of. He went on, Thomas Beckett did, to study law at Bologna, which was the, the prime law school of the day, and also at Auxerre in France. And to pay his way, he began to accumulate ecclesiastical benefices in numbers, you know, more than one church office at the time, to support his studies. Because he was a member of the Archbishop of Canterbury's household, Henry II got to meet him. Um, and soon after Henry's coronation, we find him as Chancellor. And he becomes Henry's close friend. And then this, of course, is why screenwriters, playwrights, um, historians <laughs> have found Beckett so fascinating because in one context he is the king's friend and, and servant who will, who will do whatever needs to be done for him without scruple. And there are many, many other examples of men like that throughout the, throughout the Middle Ages. Uh, the, the, the king's right-hand man. But when the Archbishop of Canterbury died, the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Theobald of Blois, when he died in 1161, it must have seemed the perfect moment to push Beckett forward, to give him the top job in the English church. Now, there's a very interesting um, relationship between English kings and how elections happen in medieval monasteries, but even more in medieval cathedral chapters. The idea is that the monks or the cathedral canons will hold their own independent election and that the person they choose will become the next bishop. In practice, there isn't a medieval equivalent of an email, or perhaps there is a medieval equivalent of an email. It's a messenger on horseback saying, the king is uh, very pleased you're just about to hold a free election and he would like you to elect so-and-so if you please and if you don't he will hear about it so it's a free election but what sorry what Henry seems to have wanted was to have Beckett as his son's right-hand man. Uh, he himself 
needed to be on the continent and he expected his son, also confusingly called Henry, to be put in place as a puppet king in England and then have Beckett really in charge. So this is the, the precise motivation behind wanting to raise his status to be Archbishop of Canterbury. But Beckett seems to have had some famous, you know, famously um, a turnaround. When he received the symbol of office from the Pope, he seems to have had some sort of epiphany to have realized that his status and his position and his responsibilities had changed drastically. And he gave up his secular offices to devote himself to his new office as Archbishop of Canterbury. He started to build up the estates of the Archbishopric. More importantly, he started to try to build up ecclesiastical liberty, to set up the established church as something different from the state with its own rights and its own ways of doing things. And what he seems to have, that he defended himself by saying that he wasn't being disloyal to Henry in doing that, but that he was obeying a master who was master of them both. One of Beckett's biographers, and as I said, he had quite a few biographers, one of the things that was said, on the dread judgment day, we shall both be judged as servants of one Lord. For temporal lords should be obeyed, but not against God. As St. Peter says, we ought to obey God rather than men. The thing is, if you're Archbishop of Canterbury, you can decide what God wants, rather than having the king decide it for you. Apart from Beckett's, what you might call, attitude problems and work ethic, there were specific political issues that they disagreed about. And one of the most famous and also quite confusing uh, one was the issue of who should be responsible for the trial and punishment of clergy. So what Henry II thought was that when a priest had been tried by an ecclesiastical court and found guilty, that he should then be sent back to the king's court, to the secular court, and given a further punishment. Beckett profoundly disagreed with that and thought that the ecclesiastical court should have the final say and that a person who had once been tried and punished by being defrocked, uh, no longer part of the clerical order, that should be it. And the trouble with Beckett was that he said exactly what he thought. He rejected um, Henry's proposals for introducing or affirming the secular custom. Henry, as the saying goes, threw his toys about, sacked him um, as his son's tutor, and deprived him of his sources of income. And then, in a sort of sleight of hand, 
he bullied Beckett and his fellow bishops into agreeing to these new customs by saying, do you agree to follow all the, all the customs of the realm? And people say, yes, uh, but they don't actually um, produce an oath. But then it appears afterwards what those customs were and what uh, he's, being, he's being obliged to abide by. In the end, Becket is humiliated, he resigns his priestly office and flees to France. Oh, I forgot to show you this. This is Canterbury, where he's Archbishop of Canterbury. But this is a wonderful and early uh, illustration from a life of Thomas Becket and showing him um, traveling to, to France. You can see him on the well, perhaps you can, on, on, on the, the boat to the left, holding up his archbishop's cross, or holding up his hand. So he, he goes into exile in France. And he goes to the Cistercian Abbey of Pontigny, and he's in exile. And one contemporary, I find this really telling, that you know anybody else in exile would be reading theological works, but Thomas Beckett is reading books of law. Just just a little insight. And from a distance, he starts to basically wage propaganda warfare against Henry and his constitutions of Clarendon, which are this statement of how the law ought to work in England. And it seems that, that, that it was Beckett who actually um, made the situation worse. The Pope is trying to effect a compromise between them. You know, he doesn't want to have England with its, its Archbishop of Canterbury in exile. And if you, we are so fortunate to have the letters of Thomas Beckett, not just Thomas Beckett, but of other people living through this crisis. But listen to the tone of this and translated into English, it loses. Well, I'm sure it loses a lot, but you can still hear um, how adamant he is. There's a letter from Thomas Beckett to Henry. He writes the whole series of letters. Among the people are kings, princes, dukes, earls, and other powers who perform secular business. That the whole may conduce to the peace and unity of the church. And since it is certain that kings receive their authority from the church and the church hers, not from them, but from Christ. So, if I may be pardoned from saying so, you have no right to give orders to bishops, nor to absolve or excommunicate anyone, nor to drag clerks before secular courts. He goes on. Whether Henry got to the end before he'd sort of exploded in a fit of rage. And of course, that is what happens. They have a temporary um, reconciliation, a superficial one, and we all know about superficial reconciliations in politics. In medieval times, I'm not sure on this particular occasion, but uh, when you, you had a kind of formal reconciliation, it's called a love day, which is not something from 1966. It's uh, where you formally 
agree to be friends again. But of course, relationships aren't always healed. Uh, this is, um, because it's so huge, you, you wouldn't guess what this is, but it's, it's a tin pilgrim badge from the 14th century found in the Museum of London. But it's showing another key moment in Beckett's life journey. He's gone to France, he's been in exile, and now he comes back. He's temporarily reconciled with Henry. So he returns to his job, his position, his status as Archbishop of Canterbury. However, he hasn't come back to conciliate, he's come back to make trouble. <laughs> he preaches against the violators of the church. Um, he pronounces sentences of excommunication for a very specific reason. Henry, our Henry, Henry II, wanted his son, called the Young King, he wanted him to be crowned as King of England during his own lifetime. That's a custom we seem to have stopped now. But it was done to secure the succession. And so Henry, during Becket's exile in France, had had his own son crowned as King of England by, guess who, the Archbishop of York. Whoa. So it's a severe um, blow to Becket. And this is why he starts to... Um, pronounced sentences of excommunication against those who were involved. And in all these ways, Becket continues to fulminate against Henry. That's a lovely word, isn't it? Fulminate. In the end, Henry loses his temper. The words that he is supposed to have said seem to have been a later gloss on what he did say. He said, what miserable drones and traitors have I nurtured and promoted in my household who let their Lord be treated with such shameful contempt by a low-born clerk. So basically what he's saying is, those who surround me, it is your duty to me to prevent him from doing all these things. And four nights, young, lusty, aggressive, loyal, stupid, <laughs> formed a mission um, and made for Canterbury from France. And the idea seems to have been in the first instance, not to murder Becket, actually, but to try to persuade him to absolve people from the excommunications they'd incurred by being involved in crowning the young king. We have a number of accounts of what happened when they got to Canterbury. Becket was first found in his house at table. Um, they remonstrated with him. Becket's clerks surrounding him thought that it might be prudent to go into the cathedral. So you can see from the, I hope you can see, that the, the top part of the illustration shows Beckett at table and the four knights. Um, holding their fingers up, 
and then afterwards below it's a, like a cartoon isn't it um, where they're in the cathedral and this is this is one of the most fascinating moments I think so Beckett's clerks make him go into the cathedral thinking that he'll be safe because it is a place of sanctuary but the knights follow him there are plenty of places for Beckett within the cathedral to hide but he doesn't choose to go to those places he confronts the the knights um, they all trade insults uh, one thing leads to another and they attack him with swords Beckett throwing himself before them or willingly going to his death it would seem commended his soul to God the Virgin Mary Saint Denis the patron saint of France and all the patron saints of his own cathedral church of Canterbury this illustration is actually the oldest illustration that's known of the moment of Beckett's murder which becomes one of the most famous moments in in, medi in medieval history and at the time one of the most notorious moments and it's it's an illustration from a letter of John of Salisbury John of Salisbury um, bit like well I won't say John Humphreys but um, a, a political commentator of of the day and actually present at Canterbury at the time and in his letters he describes the moment of Beckett's murder and this is from a, li a, 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 a manuscript in the British Library soon after the murder the, the extent of its significance um, is appreciated one always thinks of the Middle Ages as being a time when murder was commonplace. It was a frequent occurrence, but you can probably pick out on the fingers of one hand the murders that really, really changed the course of, of history. Two hands. Two hands. The Archbishop of Sens in France said it was the, the greatest crime of all history. Henry himself was worse than Judas or Nero. The Pope excommunicated everybody at the scene of or all the knights who'd actually been involved. Um, Henry quickly entered into what we would call a damage limitation exercise that had to be fairly extensive and the nature of what he did is, is, is really informative about what political humiliation looks like in the Middle Ages and how you have to try to recover your position. So he agreed on a massive program of political concessions. Oh, uh, the constitutions of Clarendon. No, 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 no. We'll, we'll go right back on that. Of course, I wouldn't dream of um, retrying uh, criminal clerks or um, punishing them twice. Um, yes, I will go on a crusade. Uh, and yes, I will found a new monastery. So political concessions but also as it were a, po a personal program of penances so he any um, 
penance that, that he does is incredibly public. He is whipped before the shrine of Becket in 1174. Um, he goes up all the steps to the shrine of Rock the shrine of Our Lady in Rocamador in France. I don't know if you've been there, but it's bad enough walking up on your feet, but on your knees would be a lot worse, I presume. But the Canterbury penance is the most humiliating because that's the actual site of the murder. Beckett's canonization happened very, very quickly after his death. For some, it takes ages, but it's, for Beckett, it's within three years. And Henry, and this is where you, you start, you can't help but admire him. Henry, as it were, agrees that yes, he ought to be canonized. Yes, he, it's part of a tragedy we're all caught up with. And that's why Henry goes on pilgrimage to Becket's shrine. He's taking him on as his own saint. It's clever. And in fact, this is the... the, the the interesting thing that makes you realize that Beckett alive really was an, an enemy of the state. Dead, he can be used as an asset. One interesting thing is that the moment when Henry was doing his penance in Canterbury is the same day when the war, which I'm just about to talk about briefly, starts to go in his favor. William the Lion, who is King of Scotland is taken prisoner on Henry's behalf the very same day that Henry is doing penance in Canterbury for the murder of Becket. And he makes political capital out of that. I couldn't resist just showing you this one. Uh, it's an alabaster from the later 14th century, and it comes, the alabaster itself comes from somewhere in Nottinghamshire or Derbyshire. Um, but it was done, uh, it was commissioned by somebody called Sir Godfrey Foljam, and that means foolish leg. And you can see that there are the four knights, and you can see Becket falling before his altar, and you can see... Beckett's biographer, who is the one holding the crucifix and who was actually injured in the, in the murder. Uh, but what you can also see, I'll just walk over here, is the foolish leg. <laughs> the Middle Ages sense of tragedy and comedy is quite special, quite whimsical. Henry's biographers, and he has several, blame what happened to him in later years as a punishment for the murder of Becket. The most immediate thing uh, was that a civil war broke out in 1173 to 4. Um, now, I'm conscious of the time. I'm conscious that not all of you have even had lunch yet, so I will be brief. But the the war that broke out 1173-4 was all over Henry's dominions and all his enemies conspired against him. His wife, 
his sons. The reason why his sons joined in was that they'd all been given titles but no real political power. Henry was capable of delegating to men of his choosing, but he would not delegate power properly to his sons. And they were all insecure about which particular parts of our father's empire are we going to be allowed to have, if any. Eleanor of Aquitaine, um, mother of all these sons, supported her sons against Henry. So did William the Lion, because he hoped to gain greater Scottish independence by doing so. <clears throat> it was as a result of his rebellion, and he was captured, and the rebellion was put down, that the, the relations between Scotland and England were, were changed such that Scottish kings were quite clearly bound in a relationship of um, feudal dependent and overlord, so with Henry II being overlord of the Scottish king. So that quarrel, that war, um, has long-term consequences for Anglo-Scottish relations. Henry puts down the rebellion with this, which is all over his territories, with astonishing speed and energy. Eleanor of Aquitaine, famously imprisoned, house arrest. It's not like, um, it's not like being in a dungeon. She's still allowed clothes <laughs> and allowed out occasionally. I'm sure you will have seen the film, or if you haven't, <laughs> already seen it. It's, it's an interesting take on, on life in the 12th century, um, with some inaccuracies. Oh, I should have shown you this before. It's the site of the Beckett murder in Canterbury Cathedral. Although he could pass judgment on Henry because of Becket, um, because of his inability to hold his family together, there's an awful lot more to his significance as, as a king. Um, there isn't time to talk in detail about his reforms to the legal system, his increased um, efficiency in revenue collection, his development of the administration of government. Each of those things sounds next to family squabbles and murders in cathedrals, rather pedestrian. But it's actually those things that set the scene for the way kings govern for centuries after Henry's reign. He really does put his stamp on the way government happens. And his establishing of the royal courts of law as being the place to get redress if you have, if you have a property dispute, we're, we're still living with the consequences of of, of that achievement. I say living with as though it were a bad thing. I, what I'm saying is that it's, it's a very long-lived effort. Historians of Henry, 
from the 17th century on have taken different views of him. They've seen him as the most English king. They've seen him as the person who really started to, to establish the state as being above the church, as being separate from the church. And so you could even foresee the English Reformation in Henry's reign, in what he seeks to do. But for me as an historian, what is most amazing is, is the very thing I said was slightly boring. I, I didn't mean it was boring, but it's, it's this deepening of the power of the state because it means for us we have so many more records. We have the plea rolls from the later 12th century. We've got the pipe rolls, which are the records of the King's Exchequer. We start to have textbooks on law and on government and on revenue collection. So instead of just relying on chronicle accounts, we've got archival sources that tell us, tell us about what was happening in a very different and detailed way. That is not just the narrative accounts of chroniclers, tainted as they may be, entertaining as they may be. We need both. And we also need the artistry and the uh, illuminations that show us how people conceived of these events in their own day. But I will just say one last thing, which is that I don't really feel that Henry II was, if you like, a new kind of English king. This slide makes them look as if they're floating somewhere. Where they actually are is in Fontevraud in western France, in Poitou. And you can still go and see their tombs and the tombs of Richard the Lionheart and Isabella of Angoulême, who was the wife of King John. And it was only with King John that we, that again, we had English kings buried in England and in the 13th century, you have Westminster Abbey as the new burial ground for English kings. So I don't think that Henry II was the first English king, but I believe he was a king who had the most profound effect on the way English people lived for the remainder of the Middle Ages. The end. <laughs>